the one thing I think we've done well is have an environment where people can say, hey, jazzed about that. We currently cannot do that. So let's figure it out together. Snackable content from brand builders. E-commerce and growth marketing leaders. Giving you actionable insights you can apply today. Bite-sized podcast. With Daniel James. So for anybody who's been listening to Bite Size for some time, creative being the variable is a statement largely agreed upon by myself and most of my guests, whether that's a brand founder or a marketer. And let's break down what effective marketing is. It's images, videos, copy, structured in a way to drive an action. To develop a creative that drives action, you have to understand creative performance and use that as a feedback loop into your creative strategy, your media buying, your creative optimization teams. At Fly Performance, we use Motion. So Motion is a creative reporting platform that visualizes creative performance and uses really easy to understand metrics that are mapped to the consumer funnel. So from thumb stop ratio to ROAS, making it so easy to understand not just performance, but where you need to optimize. Not only that, it's a huge time saver. We estimated that since using Motion across the agency, we've saved our teams two days a week from manual data pools, allowing them to test and analyze creative far more efficiently and get winning creatives and really help drive performance. Creative is the variable. Adrian, welcome to Bite Size, my friend. Thank you, brother. It's exciting to chat. I know, definitely. Uh, we, we were chopping it up a little bit before we started recording and um, it's been a minute since we uh, since we last spoke, and I've I've been kind of following what you've been up to. Um, but for anybody who doesn't know, and just to give a quick intro to you, why don't you um, give me your your five minute career story, where you started, um, and what you're currently doing? Yeah, man, for sure. Career story started three days after college. I graduated with no job. Seriously, I graduated from one of the like the best colleges in the country, and did not have a job for about a week. And three days after, somehow finagled uh, my way into venture capital, which I didn't even know what it was at the time. I cold DM someone on LinkedIn. And I was like, please let me work for you. I'll move to San Francisco. I'll do whatever you need. I didn't even know what an analyst position was. And I somehow convinced him three days after I graduated, I took a one-way flight out there and just started couch surfing and kind of just like finagled my way into VC. VC is really cool, as you know, because your job is to talk to smart people all day run through those ideas and chop it up with other people to see if their ideas are legit. And then if you want to back them, it's mainly, especially at the early stages, it's just backing really smart people. And if you decide to invest in them, then you get to hang out with them all day. Again, I was not a general partner, so I did not actually have the financial responsibility of what if this didn't work, but I was like a 22-year-old VC analyst. It was a ton of fun. And so that was my first year. I joined a bigger fund out in LA, so I moved down to LA and then I ended up moving to New York. I was at that bigger fund for about two years. And during that time, um, I'm not sure what my title, maybe associate or something like that. But basically for the first three years out of college, I was doing VC. And I was primarily investing in seed stage, both consumer brands, as well as all the Shopify tooling, commerce infrastructure, retail enablement tooling that support for those brands. And on the side, like every good young VC, you're told to start a newsletter and start tweeting and like putting out content in order to try to see these deals. And so I had this weird exposure of, I was friends with all these like seed stage B2B founders, especially in the software space. And at the same time, I had gotten really good at like kind of creating my own content online and building an audience and realizing the value of social proof content. And so what ended up happening was like those two merged out of nowhere. And about three years into investing, a lot of the B2B SaaS founders I was investing in saw my content 
And they were like, hey, we just raised, you know, say a seed round, four million bucks. We know we need to do content, but we don't really want to hire in-house yet. And I didn't think that there was an opportunity here. I wasn't like, okay, I want to go create the next like great B2B SaaS content marketing agency. Um, that was definitely not the intention. But enough of my founder friends kept asking me. It went, it was not just like a couple, it was like five, six, seven of them. They're like, hey, whatever you do in there with like the newsletter and the tweeting and like the long form content. Are you down to like freelance on the side with us? And it hit a point where I still angel invest really actively. I'm a limited partner in a bunch of small funds, especially like first time fund managers. But I just want to do finance all day. I think a lot of people in VC like pretend that they're not in finance, but you are. And so I still love it. I think it's really cool. Someday I'll go back, but I just don't want to do it full time anymore. And so it just hit a point where like, I was like, there's like six or seven founders that will put me on retainer right now to just figure out their content. They're all about like these seed stage commerce infrastructure companies, all B2B SaaS. So that's what I got jazzed about. I was about three, three and a half years out of college. And that was a year and a half ago. And so that was the kind of launch of verbatim. I didn't, didn't have a name, didn't have anything yet. I basically freelanced and consulted around for a few months. And then it hit a point where it went from like two to four, six to eight clients, all on retainer, all willing to pay more and more capital to essentially figure out what a seed stage or a series A stage, B2B, fast company should be doing on the content front. And that was the initial realization about a few months in that it was like, holy shit, the state of B2B content marketing is fundamentally broken. And there's also this really interesting period where a company raises 4 million bucks. And as they're figuring out a product market fit and going to market, at that seed stage, you don't even have a head of marketing or a head of go to market, right? You kind of just have the founder, maybe a BD or sales hire. And then a year later, say, you know, you grow well enough and sign enough customers to raise a series A. Even then at that series A, you're probably just going to hire a head of marketing. You don't really want to hire a head of content yet. And then a year later at like a series A plus or a series B, then you'll go hire a head of content. And so especially early stages, there's like a two year gap where you need to be producing content to generate more pipeline, move leads through that pipeline, and then retain and activate and upsell those leads. Content is critical across all three of those outcomes, but you don't want to build it in-house. So to break down the cost for you, and this was really what I got excited about, to hire a great, like a truly great head of content, VP of content, who has actually built a content function before, not a kid out of college that's going to write your articles. Very different from writing articles to building a content function that can actually generate pipeline. Two completely different things. So to build the latter, like a real function, head of contents right now, a good one, 175 base, plus healthcare, plus equity, plus ramp up time, plus recruiter fee, plus negotiation, right? All those interviews that you're wasting time on, right? That's definitely a great one. So you're basically looking at 200K all in across all of that, right? And it's going to take a few months to do interviews and you're going to lose time there. And also, what if they're not a good fit? You're going to let them go in a year, do it again. And then the best contents also probably aren't going to do the writing because they're very good at what they do. So then they're going to want a content lead, good content lead, 75, 80K plus healthcare, plus equity. And so you're, to build a legit content function, you probably are going to spend about $300,000. And so from C to series B, no founder wants to spend 300K on a content function, but they do need some content. And so that was, that was kind of the insert point of, wait, I think there's a play here where retention can be pretty high if we do our job. And our job is to generate pipeline and turn that pipeline into revenue. And I don't know what the model is going to be. I don't know if it's an agency or software company, whatever it is, but I know there is something there because founders basically have a choice. We don't do content 
or we just try to do it ourselves and we'll waste all our time doing it. Or we hire for it and it's $300,000 a year, not just at once. So there's got to be something in the middle that makes sense price-wise, can generate leads and convert those leads at revenue. And that idea became verbatim. And that's basically what we've been trying to build for the past year and a half. Love that breakdown, man. That's really cool. I love that. You know, I love how some of the best companies start with, you just, you see an opportunity, you figure out a way to do it at a more cost-effective and scalable route for multiple people. So congrats on identifying that because that's the first challenge, right? Figuring out where the opportunity is. When you talk about like these, you know, content engines then, right? Like you said, you're you're building content engines for these B2B SaaS companies to to generate lead uh, or, you know, lead generation and demand. What's the process? So when you're working with a company for the first time, what, what does that look like? What is a content engine? First, to describe the terminology or to define engine, engine is any repeatable motion or repeatable system that drives you to whatever outcome you want. So there's a big difference between haphazardly writing articles and hope pushing them somewhere to the ether and hoping they do something and something that is repeatable and scalable and has owners along that workflow with a well-defined scope and workflow along the way. And so for context, the reason that early stage companies really need to do this and growth stage companies is that any good VC at a series A, series B in growth is basing a lot of their investment, not just on, oh, you went from five logos to 25 logos. And even if the pricing is good and the revenue retention is good and the cohort retention is good, even if that's all nice, if you got those 25 customers, probably just through your network and through kind of hustling, you need to have scalable systems and engines to get you to the next 100 customers and the next 400 customers, right? So when a Series A investor decides to put $20 million into a company, a lot of what they're investing in as a former VC and like I'm friends with a lot of investors, what they tell me is we want to see repeatable, scalable, go-to-market engines. And so the reason we frame it as a content engine is because we're working with those seed series A and series B stage companies. And so it's not only framing it because they understand that they need to do this, but it's framing it in the lens of we're building the product or the, in this case, the service that will substitute or help support or amplify the engine that you're building. So we really try to define terminology up front. Like we're not just here to write articles. We're here to build a scalable, repeatable process that will get you leads. And again, zooming out, a content engine is just one lever within a go-to-market motion, right? You need not only a growth function, but a growth engine that is repeatable. You need not only, you know, haphazard SDR running around. You need a sales engine that will repeatably close new business, both inbound and outbound, right? So you can go through revenue, growth, sales, BD, partnerships, content. Every single one of those needs to be repeatable. And so when it comes to, if you want to pull the content lever within a go-to-market motion, cool. Let's make sure there's a real engine and repeatable function behind it. What that actually means in, in a live workflow, I can walk you through it, say we kick off with a new customer. The only note is it's definitely not rocket science. And you can probably, again, you can probably figure this out if you just focused on it for a few weeks, maybe longer, but like a few months. It is a logistical nightmare. Um, that's why most agencies exist, because there are certain things that companies do not want to do because they're a nightmare to manage. And because at some point they're going to break no matter what. Like we, we have this happen a lot where we'll go through 10 rounds of QC and make sure like people are at the final points, reviewing every single thing. A client will review it, a guest will review it, and we're writing 10 different social copy variants or email variants. And finally we ship and there's a little typo in something. And it's like, 
again, it's just a logistical nightmare. It's like, okay, is there a round of QC that's needed? And so again, I should state that up front. Like people can figure this stuff out. And hopefully a lot of the content we produce, a lot of the time I'm active on Twitter or LinkedIn, is trying to share this stuff. Um, the reason people hire us is yes, you get to skip some steps, but it's dealing with like the nightmare that people don't want to manage on a daily basis. And so to walk you through the world, if you were starting B2B SaaS company and just raised 10 million bucks, um, we make it, basically break it up in three phases. You got strategy, execution, and distribution. So what a content engine looks like is those three parts. A lot of people think, oh, I'll write articles. Writing articles does not have strategy nor distribution. That is just kind of like half-ass execution. So a real content function has all three. So if we were to kick off right now, if this was our session, we'd start with content strategy. What that means is starting with your ICP. And what we like to frame it as is if this was a live sales call, if I'm the prospect and you're pitching me about working with your company or your agency or buying your software, what are the two pain points or three pain points that I came in to solve or think you can help me solve? What are the top two to three objections that I have on this call, right? Is it, how does this work? I have no idea. Is this who else is working? Who else is using this? Is it, what were the results? Is it, what is the pricing? Is it, does this integrate with X, Y, and Z, right? And then what are the two to three outcomes that I'm looking to achieve? Like if I go buy your software, what is the perfect world? What are those two to three things that like, I know I'm going to get as outcomes or goals that I want to achieve. And so just based on that, right, a live sales call, again, the goal of building content engine is to generate leads and close those leads. So we like to start at that last step. Okay. You got a live lead. What does it look like? And so that conversation that we just had pain points, objections, desired outcomes, you break it down to the top two or three, those are your pillars, right? So a lot of the, our content strategy and you'll, a lot of people just open like, what are your pillars? Oh, well, we care about the future of the future of subscription software, the future of loyalty. Like that's not a pillar at all because the customer doesn't care about that. They don't care about the future of loyalty. They care about you addressing the second objection that they had in mind, or you painting the outcome for them, or you just directly addressing and solving their pain point. And so sales call, what are those say top two pain points, objections, and desired outcomes? Great. We got six pillars. Now for each of those six pillars, then it's really just a question of, okay, what format do we want these to be? Is it a case study that's going to address objection number one? Is it a use case or customer success story? A little different than a case study that's going to paint that perfect picture for you know desired outcome number three? Is it a lead magnet that's directly going to address you know what's called pain point number one? Right? There's endless if you think about a brand, right? Fifty different SKUs, supplements, beverages, food, whatever it is. Um, same thing with content. There's a ton of format SKUs: lead magnets, partner collabs, expert collabs, case studies. You name it. So once we have those core pillars, then it's just a question of what top, uh, what formats do we want these to be in? So then we'll open those formats. So we got the six topics, then those formats. And then it's just a matter of who is the kind of first person original interview. My opinion, since the day we started, best content will always come from conversation. That is why fundamentally, um, I'm a big fan of SEO when done well, but ultimately a lot of SEO is just someone will do keyword research, put it on a brief and tell them to go look online and try to write it up. Right. And again, SEO, completely different strategy, trying to rank on Google, where if you're building editorial, which is the opposite of SEO, that's kind of how we bucket it. We do editorial and social proof content. If you want to go down that route, everything needs to be first person content. Now it can be interviewing the leadership team, head of product, co-founder, founder, CEO, whatever it is, or it can be interviewing a customer, an expert, an advisor, an investor, a partner, a tech vendor, an agency in space, right? Those also help with distribution. So, right, so you've got those six topics, then you understand what formats you want them to be in. And then it's just a question of, okay, 
to build this asset. Now we know what we want it to look like, how long, how short. We know what it's going to be about. Now, who's the right person to talk about this? Case study is easy, right? Obviously, we're interviewing a customer. We want to build a lead magnet on the first pain point. Maybe we'll need a CEO and we'll need an expert and maybe a big name investor in the space for a couple quotes, right? Okay, we need those three people for an objection handling content that maybe we want as a one pager or a two pager instead of just a blog article. Maybe we want to pull in the head of product or like the head of engineering or something to address that objection, right? So now that's kind of the final phase of strategy. Now, okay, we know who we're talking to in what format we want to build and about what topic. Then it's just a question of reaching out to those people once we get confirmation, um, scheduling those interviews, hopping on those interviews, prepping for them accordingly, and then asking the right questions, recording the content, transcribing it, editorializing it, editing it, multiple rounds of edits with both the team as well as if there's someone external, journalistic best practices, you need to get their final cut, getting their edits, and on and on and on. So that's also execution. So we talked about strategy. Once you start scheduling those conversations, again, it could be with your founder or your head product or internal, or it could be with an external partner. Once you start scheduling, that is execution. From scheduling to writing, transcribing, drafting, editing, the final stage of execution is, you know, hand back a Google Doc. And so taking a step back a little, before we move into distribution, which is the third phase of any good content engine or the third component of any good content engine, we used to not do that. We didn't have it in three or four months ago. And transparently, the reason we're growing very quickly right now, not just in terms of new client acquisition, but in terms of our retention numbers have really improved, is because stupidly, we used to write that great Google Doc and the right strategy and the right execution, well-written, right asset, right guests. And then we'd hand it back to a busy Series A stage founder and they would say, cool, this isn't leads. This isn't revenue. You're handing me back. You're not even handing it back. You're tagging me on Slack with a link to a Google Doc. This is nothing that you've promised, right? This isn't pipeline. Like this isn't this isn't revenue generation. And this isn't scalable, right? It's nothing that you said. Again, they weren't mad at us, but it was just like a, hey, thanks for this. Um, maybe they'll try to half-ass post it on LinkedIn or something. And then it won't, it wouldn't generate the leads that they want. And so basically for the first 18 months of verbatim, aside from basically the past four months, we grew steadily. We never had a down month, but a lot of people would stay with us for kind of four to six months. And for the most part, everyone said, hey, you know, they're great quality. The team's awesome to work with. But no one was like, holy shit, you blew up our pipeline. Like they drove millions of dollars in revenue. And of course, as you know, if you want to be a great agency or a great software company or just a great company, full stop, you need to actually drive that outcome. And so we realized that like, hey, we're solving the two parts of the puzzle very well. But if we're not doing distribution, unless they have a kick-ass head of marketing who is going to distribute it perfectly, which no one does, then we're actually doing a disservice to ourselves and to our clients because we're not actually generating that pipeline and closing that revenue. And so that is essentially when we embarked about like, let's figure out distribution. And if you break it down, organic distribution is fourfold that we own. There's a lot of other ways to do it. One is on-site. And it's not just putting up a blog post and hiding in a resource section. It's featured post on a case study or customer's collections page. Within that post, you're going to get metrics and pull quote testimonials. Each of those, you should heat map your site see what the most highly trafficked pages are, and then pull those testimonials, link it to the case study with the blown up metrics and pepper it across your entire site. So it's not just hiding it, it's putting it up right there. It's adding a pop-up, it's adding a banner link, all of that stuff. 
So, so, you're, so, so you're managing all of that aspect of distribution control now as well? Yes. This is where it gets logistically complex, right? Uh, so one is on-site. Two is through socials. Um, we haven't even really done Twitter yet because it's such a nightmare right now, or X. Um, LinkedIn is what we do. So say we write a case study that goes through execution. Uh, we get sign-off from everyone. We get it on the site, right? Okay. On LinkedIn, if this is the go live week, it needs to probably get shipped first. Just you drop the link and you drop a post about it. And then you should also do a short form version, right? It's, I don't even remember what I saw on LinkedIn an hour ago. So you got to remind people, right? A couple days later, you should do a short form, maybe just highlighting like a testimonial or just the metrics, drop the link again. And then you probably want to do it the next week because like a carousel. We already designed the thumbnail image for you and we already have some design. Let's just do a carousel, ship the next week. And then if it performs well, a month later, you should probably ship it again. And then six months down the line, I definitely don't remember what I saw six months ago, let alone two days ago. You should probably ship it again. And so shipping, writing the social copy, getting the social copy approved, building the assets, tweaking the content to make sure it's always working, and then repurposing one, three months, six months down the line. As you can tell, like, it's not rocket science. You understand that. But logistically complex. Social copy, scheduling, tracking. Who knows if it worked, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. not even, that's just link. I was going to say, uh, you know, it brings me to a point around, you know, because you work, you work in B2B, work, we work in B2C, right? But one of the challenges is, and, and I'm keen to understand your thoughts, like you just mentioned there, you kind of double down on LinkedIn. There's so many, and, and you know, there's channels that lend itself better to each individual company, whether it's B2B, B2C. I imagine one of the things you're thinking through is, well, when it comes to distribution, we need to be in the right places. That requires more scale. And we know that content needs to be really native to that platform. And Twitter, to have any form of impact, right? You probably need to be posting a couple of times a day. You know, how are you thinking that through? How do companies think that through in terms of like where to be, where to show up? And and how important do you think it is to be super native to the platform of distribution? I think it's critical to be super native. And that's why we really haven't done Twitter. Like we have some clients that are like, I don't really care. Just repost it on Twitter. I will do it. Right, like they essentially don't care, and it doesn't get as good track. Um, one of the reasons is that most founders, right? So, say we're working with you guys, right? You got a big team. We're pushing, we're ghostwriting for your profile, not ghostwriting in the sense that we're shipping every day, but the asset that we want to ship, we'll ghostwrite the copy for those distribution assets and ship it for you, right? Some people say, hey, just push it on Twitter too. It's never going to perform as well. In part, people don't have embedded audiences. People already have embedded audiences on LinkedIn, so that's part of it. B2B software, especially your agencies, um, a lot of people are on LinkedIn and expect to be not sold to, but at least speaking from my experience and friends' experience, if you get a DM, you're not just going to fully turn it down. We're on Twitter. I Yeah, Twitter's a bit different, as do you know. Uh, and also just copy and content on Twitter. It needs to be more authentic, more personal, more relatable. But again, one reason we haven't leaned into it, A, it's more complex, but B, we don't want to be a ghostwriting agency. Um, a lot of people will say, hey, we'll pay you an extra five grand a month to write our socials. It's such a completely different skill set. Um, copywriting and long-form content, completely different skill sets. We've had to learn copywriting because we needed to do distribution, but we only do it enough in that we'll do it on site and we'll do it on LinkedIn. And then the third and fourth channels, just jumping in those quickly, is inbound email flows, nurturing sequences, as well as email campaigns like newsletters or one-offs. And then sales enablement assets. Those are kind of the four things. And for each of those, say the original case study, to be on an email flow, you need separate copy. 
right? For a sales enablement asset, it needs to be distilled on a deck. It can't just be the full thing. So for each of those, we've had to learn copywriting, completely different skill set, as you know. But again, to do like a full ghostwriting agency, that's pure copywriting. It's not distributing an asset. It's a completely different skill set. So we've been wary about getting pulled a little too deep into that. I'm really interested about, I mean, going back to the kind of start of, of things, because, you know, you verbatim started as, a, as as freelance, right? So talk a bit more about how how have you looked to build the company? How have you gone from and what are the steps and challenges been between you doing this for a couple of clients because you owned all the skill sets to be able to do it to developing an agency now where you have teams doing it and functions doing it. Talk a bit more about the challenges and the progression and what you really had to think through to make that uh, effective as you scale. This can be a part two conversation. Um, (laughs) Number one, still learning. Uh, I'm 27. I've been doing this for 18 months, a little longer. Um, I have no idea what I'm doing, man. Like truly, on a day-to-day basis. The core of verbatim, I tell this to our team all the time, I have never done this before. And so my brilliant idea was, hey, let's just get a lot of smart people in the same room and let's try to figure this out together. So like when we're onboarding new clients in new verticals, right? There's one thing for me to say, we're excited to go out market with bigger contracts and new verticals that we never pioneered before. And then I was talking to my team before this and they say, I'm on board. That sounds exciting. We've never done that before. We need new workflows, new scopes, new writers with experience there. We need new onboarding materials for bigger clients. We need new pod structures, right? So the one thing I think we've done well is have an environment where people can say, hey, jazzed about that. We currently cannot do that. So let's figure it out together. Um, that's one thing that, again, we're very early days into this, as we were talking about before, but that has useful, smart people, open dialogue, like as transparent communication as possible about what we can do, what we can't do, what we're excited about, and also like a ghostwriting shop. No one want, really wants to do that. That's not why we're here. So let's not go that direction. And then I'd say the second point, just in terms of scaling, the best analogy I've heard, I don't know if you heard this, the Andrew Wilkinson from uh, Tiny, when he was starting Metal Lab, his analogy of like running a restaurant was the best thing. Like imagine you have like a bake shop or a coffee shop or something. At first, it's like you and maybe your partner, you and one person, and you can kind of like divide responsibilities, but you're still doing, uh, you're still creating the recipe and baking it and doing the prep and the cleanup. And then you're rushing back to the front and you're doing the customer service and you're trying to create a rewards program and you're at the cashier and you're checking them out. So you're doing all these things. But if you actually want to become a chain of these or build this into something much bigger than yourself and actually leave a legacy, very much what we're trying to do, build something bigger than I ever could. The way to actually do that is you can't pretend you can do everything. And so what we're trying to do and you know what the best chefs and restaurateurs in the world do, hire a lot of talented people, create a menu, and then ensure excellence across every vertical of the company. Right, that's what the best, you know, Danny Meyer, best restaurateurs in the world do. So instead of him saying, I'm going to figure out the menu and I'm going to do it. No, let's hire the best head of content or VP of content in the world or that we can find and let them create the menu, let them figure it out and then let them hire the team to execute on it. And so increasingly, I feel my bar or my role as we scale up, as I'm sure you felt this too, it's hire great talent, um, not only pay them decently well, pay them very, very, very well so that they're happy and they stay. And also don't overwhelm folks and burn them out, as we were talking about before. But two, increasingly, just your job is to show up with discipline and with energy and to ramp the pace as much as possible, again, without burning people out or without pushing people's buttons or going above and beyond, but showing up every single day and trying to drive the pace. 
Um, and that's the one thing that I haven't learned. Like some days I'm tired. Like I woke up at like 6am this morning. I couldn't go back to sleep. I'm exhausted. But some days you just have to show up and deal with meetings and, you know, put your best face forward. And so that's definitely a part I struggle with. Uh, but again, it's your job to like, if you're on a one-on-one with a new team member, sorry, I'm not, sorry, I'm tired today. It like doesn't cut it. And so that's something that I'm still learning. I don't know if you have any advice for, but that's the tough part. Uh, one thing I'll say about that is um, there's no point at which that ends. So, you know, with, um, and I also think it's just something that all founders go through, right? So, you know, myself having built and sold an agency, now part of a bigger agency with people who have done that before. And and just, I think I'm fortunate in my network of of, of friends to, to have people who have achieved things bigger than I have, right? And what, what I always like is, not that I necessarily need the reassurance, but it's like the things you're going through, everyone goes through, and it means you're kind of on the right path, which, you know, I, I it's like, why do things become platitudes? It's because they're true. Like these things are true. And I think at dif- different growth stages of any company, you reach similar inflection points to to how other people have gone through their journey. So I think, and, I, and you're probably doing this, but I think what really helps with that is just having a network group of people who are further down their journey than you are. Because oftentimes you can think, well, shit, I'm going through all these challenges. Like we've got that, you know, we've got a really shiny exterior. The clients think everything's buttoned up and we're spinning plates in the background trying to figure everything out. And I say that that's very common. Um, so when you can talk to people who have gone through that stage, it's it's nice for the reassurance perspective, but also they can give you certain tips on well, how do you you know how do you structure things? How do you think about workflows? What's the best way to bring in managers? How do you incentivize them? What do you look for when you're hiring? All those sorts of things. So man, I mean, we were talking before the podcast. I think you're doing an incredible job, and everything you're doing and everything you're going through is what. I went through and everybody else probably building, uh, especially service-based companies went through. And I think you're, you're doing all the right things. So hopefully that gives you some reassurance. <laughs> One impromptu therapy session. I appreciate it. <laughs> so podcasts kind of are a little bit sometimes, right? It's just like, yeah, op- open therapy. So man, I, you know, I try and keep these, uh, these, these podcasts relatively, relatively snappy owing to the name. So we're going to have to wrap up in a second, but, um, I just want to say a big congratulations for what you're building. You know, I was really excited to get you on the pod because I think about content engines from a more B2C perspective, right? Cause we work with, with, uh, consumer facing brands and they have a challenge in a slightly different way, but there's a lot of, a lot of similarities, right? There's, there's, how do we put out the right content that gets the right response from our potential consumers and how do we make that really native to the platform of distribution? How do I distribute it? Do I need to be everywhere? What are my core channels? Um, I actually posted on, on LinkedIn about that today, just like channel mix. Um, and you spoke about it uh, with, with with your with your agency from a B2B perspective. So I think content engines in general is such a, a topic for the now and the future. Because I tend to believe and subscribe to the to the notion as well that a lot of companies, you know, need to build kind of like media companies as part of what they're doing. They need to tell the right story, show up in the right way, and be in the right places. And I think that's obviously why I've seen success. So just massive kudos to you, man, for what you're building. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun. Of course. We'll do a part two. Another Definitely. therapy. I was going to say, I was going to say, uh, we'll definitely get part to it in, on the books for sure. Uh, appreciate you coming on, my man. Thank you, brother. 